Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Okay, we're on week five this morning, um, and we're talking about Christ alone. There we go. Okay, so just a little bit of a recap from where we've been the past month. The first week, we talked about this overall idea of why doctrine is important. We talked about primary and secondary beliefs, how primary doctrine impacts salvation, and how secondary beliefs are very important, but they don't, uh, they don't have any um, impact on our salvation. And we talked about the danger of what can happen if you input a secondary belief into a primary, such as baptism, in um, any of those ideas into the secondary and what happens if you take something out of primary, such as Jesus being God, like we'll talk about this morning. You take that out and you no longer have the gospel. Uh, so that, that is why we don't, uh, that why we need to have a differentiation between primary and secondary beliefs. Then we talked about grace alone. Um, and for this grace alone talk, we spent a lot of time on Matthew 18, so the parable of the unforgiving servant. We talked about how each one of us has built up this massive debt that we cannot pay off on our own, but the king comes in and pays off our debt, not based off of anything that we've done, uh, but off of compassion and love. And kind of like our main thought was, what have you done? Nothing. What have you gained through Christ? Everything. And two weeks ago, uh, the last time I was here, we talked about faith alone and how that was focused on the idea of justification. We talked about how justification is a legal declaration of righteousness, and we all agreed that on our own, we are not righteous, and in order to get righteousness, we had to have faith, and that faith was uh, given to us by God. Um, And today, we're going to be talking about the object of that faith. So what are we having faith in? Uh, but before we get there, I'd love to, to hear some things you learned last week when Caleb was talking about Scripture alone. Must have been a great class. Just kidding. I listened to it. It was good. I like the statement he made when he said, the Bible is given to us for salvation, redemption. Mm. I mean, it's such a simple statement, but so profound. Yeah. That's great. The Bible is given to us for salvation and redemption. Yeah. So in order for us to have faith, we need to hear God's word, right? Absolutely. What else? Yeah, Rick. Mm. Yeah, so he talked about the evidence of the inspiration of Scripture through prophecies. What else? Yeah. Right, right. And, and so 
when, when you, what we've been trying to do in, in each of these solas, is to, and what we'll do for Christ alone here in a second, is the reason why we have to have a statement like Scripture alone is because so many people hold to a different belief system that says, well, it's not just Scripture, but we have this authority here where we can receive ultimate truth. And the danger that that has for us, like you said, is um, when, when those two things begin to contradict, when you begin to say, I have the truth, yet we don't see it in Scripture, um, what, which one begins to, to win in the battle? You know what I mean? Which, which one is the ultimate source of authority? Uh, and, you know, I think we've seen that in, in the Catholic Church for uh, the last 1,500 years as, as we've seen contradiction from Scripture and what their uh, vicar of Christ, uh, according to them, has said, such as the anathemas that we talked about a couple weeks ago, it, it puts us in a situation where we have to say, okay, who is our authority or what is our authority? Um, and here at Faith Bible Church, we, we believe that Scripture is our ultimate authority, that all of our beliefs need to be filtered through um, God's Word. So, and you know, we'd, we'd also say that for the, the past 600 years that uh, men and women have put their lives on the line uh, for that truth and um, something that we hold fast to here. And so what I put uh, for Scripture alone is that the Bible is our sole authority uh, for inspiration and truth. And when I say inspiration, uh, I guess I could mean, you know, to get yeah, really excited, but what I, what I meant by inspiration was the inspired Word of God. Okay. So we're going to get started on um, Christ alone this morning. And I put just a couple quotes. Some of the resources that I use for this talk, I've been going through that five solo series that Southern Baptist Seminary put out. But I use John Frame's uh, Systematic Theology. I'm a big fan of, of, his, of his work. He's a, um, an RTS professor in Orlando. Um, he was a, a really good resource for me for um, this talk. Okay, so... We're going to start off with this, and then we're going to get to the two goals of this time. But I want to first talk about what it means to have a mediator. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever had a mediator before in your life. Um, So a mediator typically is simply just a third party uh, who comes in and intervenes for something to be settled. So what's an example um, just in our world of a time? Uh, Yeah, I I do have handouts. Uh, one side is really well detailed. The other side, not so much. I want to give, a li- I want to give both people you know, a little bit of, of what they like. I might have ran out of them, though. Um, but that, that side talk, anyway. Uh, so where are some examples of mediators that we see in our context? Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's a great example. Yep. So with an employer and employees, someone comes in, and we see this, this is big time in the NFL right now because uh, the NFL Player Association uh, typically is fighting for the rights of players, right? How much money are we going to get paid? How many games are we going to get played? We see it in unions. Uh, what should my hourly wage be? How can, oh, that was wild. Uh, how can we be protected as employees? And someone comes in uh, and says, here are what the employees need, here's what the employer wants, and we come in and we settle this. Uh, Outside of employers and employees, what else is an example? Yeah. Yeah. 
wow, I've never heard of that. That's really cool. Yeah, uh, that there's a, a student mediator uh, between the student and uh, the principal. Oh, between other students. So between two students before they have to go see a counselor. Yeah, that's, that's a really, a real common example of this is between, um, in cases of child protective services and parents and the court and the state, it's a really common one. Any others? Yeah, Bryce. Ah, that's a really good example. Some would say they're not always neutral though, Bryce. Uh, some would say. Of paid referees, but no, that's a good. Okay, um, anyway, uh, kind, of, kind of what we've seen through the past three weeks uh, and what we'll explore more in this topic and something that we'd all hold to is, is just the reality that we've been alienated from God. That because of our sin, there's a separation between God and man and we talked about how we need grace and we need faith and we need scripture to, to that gap between God and man. Um, but the question is, is how does the bridge come to be? And we see in 1 Timothy um, 2, 5, and 6 that there is a mediator between God and man. So I'll read that really quick. You don't have to flip there. It says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So that is what we need. We need someone to come in and mediate this alienated relationship between God and man. And that's where we're going this morning, is to talk about who that mediator is. Um, but I want to start off with this question, is why does it matter? So, so similar to what we've done the past few weeks, uh, why do we need to hold true to a doctrine like Christ alone? What are some competing views or maybe some reasons why we need to, to know what this doctrine is um, and where we see it in Scripture? Yes, did everyone hear that? Uh, mostly because I'm not sure I could resummarize it. Uh, that's why I was, <laughs> hopefully you heard it. Uh, but it's, it was a good thought. Yeah, Shelly. Yeah, so uh, what Shelley was saying is that universalism would be competing with this idea that you're saved through Christ alone, which, is, which I would say that that's the, the most clear modern threat to this doctrine of Christ alone is. It's not just your truth. That's just your truth. Um, I believe something else, and in my version of truth is just as good. You see this most clearly illustrated with 
um, when you would hear a universalist description of the description of the elephant. Are you familiar with that? Um, so it's um, the way you know who God is is kind of like there's four blind men and each of them are trying to describe the elephant. So one uh, hold, like, touches the leg of the elephant, they're like, oh, the elephant is like a tree trunk. And one elephant, or one elephant, one man grabs the trunk, and it's like, oh, uh, the elephant is kind of like a snake. Or one man grabs the side, and it's like, oh, it's kind of like a brick wall. And all of these men are describing different aspects of the elephant, uh, but it's all the elephant. So the universal would say, well, the, the Muslims ha- have it right here, Hindus have it right here, Christians have it right here, but they're all touching the same thing. Um, obviously, we, we would say that's a flawed uh, description because the assumption then would be that the universalists can actually see clearly, right? So the universalists can see the elephant, but he's describing everyone else is blind, um, and that, that's a truth uh, claim on its own. That was a roundabout description, but yeah, one thread is universalism. What else? Yeah. Mm. Right. So what Blake said is the Bible so clearly teaches that Jesus says that he is the way to God. Therefore, if Jesus is not the only way to God, you therefore lose all the authority that scripture has with it. Um, and, and I would say that's even a, that's probably a historic threat to this doctrine, and you know, even something we'll get into today, is the early church was fighting over, was Jesus really God? Uh, how, was Jesus just a spirit? Was Jesus just man? Was Jesus just God? Who was Jesus? Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today. So here, here are our goals today, is I just want us to answer two questions. Who is Christ? So who is the person of Christ? And what does and so I kind of put that under two umbrellas, and one umbrella is his exclusivity, his person, and the second is what does he accomplish, his sufficiency. I should probably look and see how I'm doing on my notes right now. Okay, so the, yeah, the first under Christ is the mediator. The next point is Christ's person, which is what we'll talk about here in a second. Uh, but I want to highlight one text of Scripture first before we get there. Uh, I was reading John Frame this morning, and he, he talks about Martin Luther, and so I want you to imagine 16th century, Martin Luther's in his office, he's studying his Bible, and Martin Luther pens in the margin of one passage of Scripture, and what he writes is, this is the chief point in the central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. You don't want to take a guess what passage of Scripture he was writing that for? He says, this is the chief point of the whole Bible. In the margin of one of the books. It was Romans 3. Wow, that's great. Well done. Uh, Romans 3, 21 through 31. Um, it says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, 
whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So in that 10 verses of scripture, we see so many things that we've been talking about and that we would hold fast to. Propitiation, justified by faith, justified by grace, justifying not just the Jews, but the Gentiles. Righteousness, faith in Christ, and sin. So I just want that passage to serve as the backdrop of these two points of the person of Christ and the works of Christ. Okay, let's get started. Two questions to answer. Hypostatic union. Okay, so when I think of Ernie Godshall, I think of hypostatic union. Uh, if there are any words that I've heard come out of Ernie's mouth more than uh, Bible and Jesus, it is hypostatic union. Um, and because it is such a critical doctrine I, I th- and of who Christ is, I think we need to spend quite a bit of time unpacking what the hypostatic union is. Um, so the word hypostatic means personal. So it's personal. Personal. Um, so it is a personal union. Uh, two natures coming together in one person. So this was a, a doctrine that was um, brought together in the Chalcedonian Creed in the 5th century. And they came to agree in this hypostatic union. They kind of summarized it uh, with these four things. That uh, the hypostatic union is without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. That's not in your notes. just something to keep in mind. That this is a concrete, clear doctrine scripture that Jesus is clearly man and he's clearly God. So we're going to start off with Jesus is truly God. Um, so I avoid uh, the word fully, mostly because I heard R.C. Sproul say truly once, and I thought it was, it thought it was more clear. And it's one of my favorite examples of differences in, in men who uh, have disagreements in secondary theology. So uh, R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur are doing this Q&A together, and John MacArthur is giving a description of the hypostatic union. And uh, he, he says something like, you know, Jesus is true, or fully man or fully God. And, and R.C. Sproul like intervenes and says, John, it's truly God, truly man. Why am I always trying to tell you what you believe? Uh, and it was just, it was beautiful, honestly. Um, and R.C. Sproul, is just, he's been a hero of mine, and, and the different, differentiation between the two uh, is, is fully kind of makes you think like you're trying to think of like a math equation, like that you can only be, if you're full of something, you can only be one of each. But what truly means is that it is clearly, fully, uh, but actually God. He is actually God, and he is actually man. 
So that was just a, a thought on that. But the Heidelberg Catechism uh, says this in question 17. I, th- I think these are really helpful. It says, why must he be God or be truly God so that by the power of his divinity, he might bear the weight of God's anger and his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. So how do we know that Jesus is truly God? What would you say? Someone comes to you and says, Jesus was just this good teacher. He did these great things, said some wise things. I'm not even sure he really existed, but if he did, he was a good guy. How would you say he's truly God? Yeah. Right. So he says it. What else? Go ahead. No, it's great. Mm. Yep. So uh, in Scripture, we see that there's a oneness between the Father and the Son. Each are claiming that there is a relationship there. What else? How do we know that Jesus is truly God? Yeah. Right. So the, the Jewish people are baffled when Jesus says that he forgives sins. Uh, he's speaking as one who had authority. So Jesus claimed to forgive sins, and only God could forgive sins. What else? Yeah, like in John 8, it's typically where I would go with someone, it's where Jesus takes upon himself the Old, the old Testament covenant name of God, the, the I Am. He mm. places that upon himself, saying that he was pre-existing Abraham. And so to do that is the utmost blasphemy, and it's true. Yep. The I Am statements of Jesus. What else? Let's, let's start with Kathy. Yeah. Mm, yep. Resurrection, ascension, absolutely. What else? Uh, I guess it was the apostolic witness to his testimony. Peter said it was witnesses on the Mount of Transfiguration. And I guess another example of the apostolic witness is the Yes, an apostolic witness. He said it again. Yes, we see the temptation of Jesus by Satan. Yep, miracles. Yeah, you'd see it there. You also see in Colossians that He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Rick, last one. Yeah, the resurrection is clear. Um, so here, here are a few examples I gave for this, that Jesus bears divine attributes. Um, so we see this, Jesus knew what people were thinking. He knew that someone would betray him. Jesus knew he was going to rise from the dead. He, he could see what was going to happen. Um, it's a divine attribute. Um, he knew the mission of his life. You know what I mean? He knew that he was going to go to the cross and die for the sins of mankind. And even for us to think about that, we don't know our, like, we don't know when we're going to die. We don't know our future. We don't know what's going to happen in two years. We don't know what's going to happen in three hours. But Jesus knew where he was going and why he was going there. And he also knew that that was uh, God's design for him, was to go to the cross. Secondly, 
Jesus performs divine acts. Uh, so this is miracles, and, and he would do those miracles at will. He would tell people his sins were forgiven, creation, forgiveness of sins, final judgment. Those are divine acts, something only God can do. And then finally, Jesus in Scripture is an object of faith and worship. So he's called Lord. He's called Son of God. He's called Son of Man. He's called the Savior. He's the object of faith as the Lord. Secondly, Jesus is truly man. Heidelberg Catechism, question 16, says, Why must he be a true and righteous man? He must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned, should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for the sins of others. So Jesus had to be man in order to pay for our sin. And we see that Jesus man in a few ways. We see his humanity in his human body. He was tired. He ate. He grew. He hurt. He died. Human body. Secondly, his human heart. Jesus wept. He had compassion. He marveled at the centurion's faith. He was troubled. He felt. He he was a person. He had a heart. Thirdly, he had a human mind. We see that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature before God. And finally, he had a human will. When he said, not my will be done but yours, I've come from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So ultimately, Jesus had to be truly man. I posted a David Mathis quote on here, and I was like, man, if we could just take away one part of the hypostatic union, I think it's so much easier to see Jesus' divinity than his humanity. And David Mathis, he works for Desiring God, said this. I quoted at the bottom of that page. He became man in full so that he might save us in full. He is truly a marvelous Savior. Jesus had to be truly man in order to pay for our sin. So that's who the person of Christ is. Truly man, truly God. Um, But I want to talk about Christ's work. And and we see this really clearly in what's typically called the threefold office of Christ. Has anyone heard of that before? The prophet, priest, and king? Um, And how each of those are are different roles that Jesus uh, performed or lived out in his time on earth. That he was... Uh, the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king for humanity. Um, So we're going to work through each of those three pretty quickly, and then I just want to talk about the exclusivity of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. So what is a prophet? What is a prophet? Or or maybe what did a prophet do in the Old Testament? Yep, foretold the future. What else? Yep, spoke the word of God to the people. That is uh, what a prophet did. And sometimes that word of God was what was going to come into the future. Um, So who brings the true word? And what we see in the Old Testament is that the the true word was typically not always good news, right? We see Jeremiah like begging to not be a prophet. I don't want to do this anymore. This is is really hard. I'm telling all these people what is going to come. Um, And we see ultimately that Jesus is the prophet who is to come. And Deuteronomy 18.18 18 describes who the, what the prophet's role is. Um, he says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded him. That was what the prophet did in the Old Testament. 
Why do we need a prophet? We need a prophet because uh, kind of what we were talking about with Scripture alone last week and some of the things that you each highlighted on what you learned is because we don't have direction when we're held to our own understanding of life. Where do we go? What do we hold by? What is commanded to us? Uh, We need a prophet because we're finite. We don't know objective truth outside of God's revelation. And we see that God provided revelation even to Adam in the garden. You must work. You must not eat of this tree that I've commanded you. We see that there is truth being given by God to his people throughout the Bible. So Jesus is not only a prophet, but he is the source of all prophecies. Isn't that amazing? It's, you know, it's kind of like, what was, what was I talking about? Like a, what was the word I used a couple weeks ago? Uh, paradox. Paradox, I love that word. So Jesus is not only the one who's being prophesied about, but he's the source of all of those prophecies. Uh, he instilled those in the hearts of all men in the Old Testament. And Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says this, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So Jesus is the final prophet, uh, the one who was to come and is to come, the one who said all that was needed. uh, And what we see in the New Testament was Christ came uh, to be the the final prophet. Priest. Okay, we're going to spend a little bit more time here than the other two uh, because priest is where we see the sacrifice and intercession for sins and where I think we uh, just, yeah, this will be helpful. So what was a priest in the Old Testament? An intercessor. So someone who interceded for the people before God. What else? Yeah. Yes, he had, he had to be the one who atoned for the sin of the people. Um, and yeah, those are the two things that, that we see. The priest's two duties were to, to sacrifice and to intercede for the people. Um, Hebrews 5 says this about uh, priests. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. So those priests in the Old Testament were the mediators between God and man. Um, They would sacrifice animals without blemish. And I think that's what we see that's so beautiful with with Jesus, was he was uh, the ultimate spotless lamb. Uh, The one who had no sin, uh, did not deserve uh, to go to the cross, and yet did. So there's this concept, uh, theological concept, called substitutionary atonement, and I think it'd be worth uh, just spending a a couple uh, seconds on a few points of substitutionary atonement. Um, Kind of like a, yeah, one, two, three for this. I don't think I have it in your notes. Um, So the first principle of substitutionary atonement is 
that we have sinned before God, something that we're going to continue to talk about every Sunday school uh, because it is the critical piece of this puzzle, is that because of our sin, we have been separated from God and we have a need. Um, And given that God is personal, so God is a relational God, uh, and he has a standard of righteousness. We talked about this two weeks ago that we do not have. And so God and his character with us and our sin cannot allow himself to be in relationship with us uh, if we're left to our own accord. Uh, Without righteousness, with blemish, with spots, he cannot overlook our sin. So, secondly, God can only forgive sins if he punishes a representative substitute who bears our sin. So if God is going to look at you, the sinner, look at me, the sinner, and say, I'm going to pay for that sin, I'm going to enter back into relationship with him, there must be a proper substitute that can take his place. So the only way for that to happen, though, is God actually has to provide the substitute. Uh, so that, that's where we get to this idea of grace, is that we're not the one going to find some substitute somewhere like, hey, can you take my place, please? You know, it's not like a game of tag where it's like, okay, now you're the substitute, and then I don't, I don't want to pay for my sins, so now you're the substitute. Jesus comes in and says, I am going to be the substitute for you. Uh, and that's where we get this idea of atonement. So Christ comes in to be the ultimate lamb and the priest at the same time. And he comes in to pay for our sin, and his atonement accomplished four things. And I want to spend uh, the, almost the last bit of time talking about these four Uh, things that Christ's atonement accomplish. Uh, The first is expiation. I think I have this on a slide. I do. E-X-P-I-A-T-I-O-N. So this is, uh, we see this in 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So expiation is that Jesus bore your sin. He took it on the cross and therefore did away with your sin. It, it is no longer yours. Expiation means to go away. Your sins are gone as a result of faith in Christ. So as a result of expiation, you are now seen as righteous. Righteousness has been given to you. And there's propitiation. Ernie's second favorite word. Um, propitiation is the reality that Jesus not only takes away your sin, but you no longer have to bear God's wrath. That Jesus bore God's wrath on the cross for you. So you see this in Romans 3.25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So God now sees you not only as sinless, but as a beloved son with whom he's well pleased. That's amazing. Thirdly, reconciliation. Uh, what does it mean for someone to be reconciled? It means that there uh, was a relationship, God, Adam, in the garden. The relationship is severed, and we see this all the time with whether marriages or parents and their kids or friends, that there is uh, a, a broken relationship between two parties. And in order for there to be reconciliation, what has to happen? What has to happen for reconciliation to happen? Think about a fight with your friend, right? You know, knock out, drag out, like, I don't like you anymore. I don't, no, I don't like you anymore. How do you heal it? Forgiveness. forgiveness. How does that happen? By grace, mercy, absolutely. 
what else? Think, think about an argument you've had uh, with a spouse or a friend. How did you see reconciliation happen between the two? Yeah, I'm sorry. At the end of the day, someone's got to lay down their life, right? In an argument, yeah, go ahead. Yes, right? My wife always reminds me we need to see our sin first, most important. Absolutely. Um, so we see that any time that there's this argument or this fight and reconciliation has to happen, someone's got to humble themselves and say, I have sinned against you. And, I, and, I, and I'm just, I'm begging you to forgive me. What I did was wrong. Uh, I want to repent of this. Uh, and what we see in Scripture is, who's the one who humbled himself? It's Jesus, right? J- Jesus is the one who humbled himself. And then through his humility and through God's grace gives us the ability to respond to that. It's a reconciliation. It's a restored relationship. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 19 says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. It's amazing. And then finally, redemption. Man. Okay, I'm running out of time. It's already 945 but I'm going for it. Okay. Leviticus 25. Okay, this is, this is an amazing picture of redemption. So in the Levitical law, we see uh, this law of redemption of property. And so the idea was this, if a man had a debt and he chose that he was going to pay off that debt by selling his property. So I owe you something. All I have left is my house. So I sell it. And he no longer has possession of the house. If he still has a debt, he had to go in, into slavery in order to pay off that, the remaining debt. Well, what we see in the Levitical law is that there's a way out. Is a redeemer could come in and he could pay the debt for him, giving the man his property back and his freedom. And what we see is it's a great picture of what the redeemer does, right? The redeemer comes in and pays a ransom. He pays a ransom so the man can be set free and be given um, what he needs. And we see that really clearly with Jesus in Mark 10.45. And typically when you think of Mark 10.20 or 10.45, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. It's typically what we think of the passage, right? That we need to serve because Jesus served. And we don't talk about the last bit of the passage that says, and he came to give his life as a ransom for many. And the word ransom is huge there. Because what the word ransom means is you're being held hostage by something, and I'm coming in to let you go free. And that's what Jesus does, is you're held hostage by your sin, just like the man was to his debt in Leviticus. And Jesus says, I'm going to pay the ransom in full. I'm not going to pay it with money, but I'm going to pay it with my blood. Jesus was a ransom for many. It's amazing. And then finally, king. Jesus is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He fulfills the Old Testament prophecies of uh, being in the line of David. Uh, Colossians 3, we see that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. Um, He's the ultimate victor. He conquered sin and death, and that's what you would expect your king to do, to go into battle, to conquer the enemy, and that's what Jesus does on our behalf. That's awesome. Okay. Exclusivity of Christ. Really quick, last two things. Uh, Matthew seven thirteen through 14 says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. 
For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. He means, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Um, and that, that can do a couple things for us as, as people who believe that is what it, what it should do for us, is, this is what I'll say, is that should lead us to compassion, right? That should lead us to worship, compassion for all those who don't believe that because we would say outside of that, they cannot enter into a right relationship with God. And we as believers long for all people to know Christ deeply, intimately, and personally. And so the, the worst thing we should do is and you don't believe in this doctrine, you're going to hell, I, I don't, like, I'm not going to associate, associate myself with you, but what this should do is it should lead us to compassion, to point them to the Savior, to point them to the one who their hope in Christ can be found. It should bring awareness to us as well uh, that Christianity is exclusive. We, we typically think of exclusivity as a bad thing. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, th- this is a matter of truth and a matter of life or death. Um, and this should bring more than anything awareness to us that those outside of the fold uh, will not enter into eternity with God, but rather eternity away from him. Uh, and we long for people to go through the narrow gate, not the wide one. And finally, I'm going to end with this quote from John Calvin. Uh, I think it, it, if I just read this quote in two minutes and walked off, it would have uh, been sufficient for this Sunday school class, but I think it is. It's a beautiful depiction of this doctrine. So I'll read this quote, and I'll pray, uh, and we'll go into a time of worship. We see that our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else. If we seek salvation, we are taught by the very nature of Jesus that it is of him. If we seek any other gifts of the Spirit, they will be found in his anointing. If we seek strength, it lies in his dominion. If purity, in his conception. If gentleness, it appears in his birth. If we seek redemption, it lies in his passion. If acquittal, in his condemnation. If remission of the curse, in his cross. If satisfaction, in his sacrifice. If purification, in his blood. If reconciliation, in his descent into hell. If mortification of the flesh in his tomb, if newness of life in his resurrection, if immortality in the same, if inheritance of the heavenly kingdom in his entrance into heaven, if protection, if security, if abundant supply of all blessings in his kingdom, if untroubled expectation of judgment in the power given to him to judge, in short, Since rich store of every kind of good abounds in him, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. Some men not content with him alone are born hither and and thither from one hope to another. Even if they concern themselves chiefly with him, they nevertheless stray from the right way in turning some part of their thinking in another direction. Yet such distrust cannot creep in where men have once for all truly known the abundance of his blessing." It's amazing. Let us drink deeply from Christ alone and no other. Let me pray. Um, God, I, I confess, um, God, that it's so uh, easy for me to think that uh, there are other fountains that I should be drinking from. God, whether it's with 
uh, my finances or, or other things pulling on my heartstrings uh, from my affection. God, I pray that I would see that you are the fountain in which that if I take a drink from God, that I will no longer thirst again. God, I just pray for the men and women, children in this building, God, that we uh, would uh, drink deeply from the fountain of Christ. God, that we would see that you are the king, the ultimate high priest, God, and the final prophet. God, I pray that our hope and trust would be in Christ alone. God, that we would see your atonement for our sin and its beauty. Um, God, that for the next hour and a half of worship, God, that we would, uh, we would sing. God, we would pray. Um, God, we would hold fast to your word. God, I pray that we would love Jesus more today as a result of what we see in Christ. I pray that it would be true for the rest of our lives. In your name I pray. Amen.